I have a handy-dandy hymn book here, and uh, the song came to me this morning. Um, maybe some of you know it, Whiter Than Snow. I'm not going to sing the, uh, let's see, not the chorus, but the, is it the verse? I don't know it that well. Um, but it says, now wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Whiter than snow, yes, whiter than snow. Now wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. So friends, when you look at the snow out there, just think of these poor people suffering in southern United States and out west. They don't get snow, man. And we, we get snow, and it's a reminder on how our sins have been forgiven. The stain of sin has been washed away. And instead, we have the, the holiness, the righteousness of God. We carry with us. And so when, when Jesus looks at us, he sees white as snow. And many of you know, you know, tomorrow, maybe Wednesday, the snows start getting a little creepy out there. You know? You know how that happens? Slush and mush. And it, it's messy. And that's just a picture, again, of our lives and how much we need the Lord. Because without him, man, we just turn into mush. And, and uh, God wants us to make a difference. He sure does. Just a couple things uh, reiterating what Becky had to say. Guys, Saturday, no regrets, man. I just want to encourage you, those of you watching online, uh, man, sign up. Because uh, I've been going, I don't know, 25 years now. Uh, I haven't missed a year. By the grace of God, and I wouldn't want to miss a year. Uh, gentlemen, it's something about coming together, you know, as men. And there's breakout sessions, they're teaching, being with the dudes all day. How cool is that? Right? Yeah. So, man, let's, uh, let's, let's sign up and have a crew on Saturday. And it's, it, what's cool is you leave in the morning and you're back for dinner at night. Right? That reminds me, I had a dream this morning, probably 2.38 in the morning. Uh, and in my dream, I, I kept telling this person, I want to go home. <laughs> they were trying to take me somewhere I didn't want to go. And I kept saying, I wanna, didn't you hear me say, I want to go home? You know? And uh, finally, I opened my eyes because I was home. <laughs> I didn't have to say it anymore. I'm home. It's good to be home. And uh, so we're home for dinner, and uh, you make a day of it. It's, it's a great investment of your time. Awaken is next Sunday. Uh, folks, I flash back to Transformed, the nights we were here. And I have to tell you, I was sitting over here a few other nights, and uh, when we broke into prayer groups, I just sat there and took it in. It felt like heaven. We were in heaven. The, the love, the, just the unity, the, the presence of God, you know? And that happens at Awaken. And the privilege we have to pray with one another and for each other. 
is cool. And uh, next Sunday, again, we have the baptismal class. Friends, if you've been, if you put your faith in Christ and never been baptized, you got to do it. It's a command. You know, it's not, you can opt out and, you know, I don't feel like it and whatever the case may be. Um, no, do it. And uh, we have, it's a great time, really, for those of you that have been here. Isn't it cool? Yes. Baptism Sundays. So don't delay, man. Don't procrastinate. Let's get on it and uh, get in the water. And we promise to bring you out. So we are uh, opening uh, a new series today. You may have heard we're going to be jumping into the book of Daniel. And um, for those of you online, you could pull it up on the Life Church web page or the Life Church Facebook page, the outline. Um, I've got my copy. You should have your copy in the auditorium, by all means. And um, I just, I, I get, I've been fired up all week to be able to teach the Bible. It's a privilege. The title of this morning's talk is, um, you know, the, of course, the theme of the series, Thriving in a World Gone Haywire. I think if we took a vote today, we'd say the world's gone haywire. I don't think anybody would say, no, you're wrong, man. You missed it. Um, and today's title, This Is Not My Home. This, I talked about, <laughs> man, did I mess up or what? <laughs> I want to go home and I'm not home. This is not my home. should have reminded myself at 2.39 in the morning. That it's not my home. Anyway. Back in 1967, uh, July 1st, Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. What was the deal? They were celebrating their centennial for Canada over national television. Man, there were thousands of people that showed up, many politicians. Queen Elizabeth came over from England. Uh, many other dignitaries showed up to celebrate the great event. And uh, when Queen Elizabeth came on the platform, there were eight clergymen that stood and greeted her uh, as well. And uh, during this gathering in Canada, they had a time of worship, they had a time of prayer, scripture reading, and a time of national confession of prayer. And the Prime Minister, uh, Lester Pearson at the time, read from the Bible, 1 Peter 3, 8 through 14. I'm just going to read verse 12. Uh, the eyes of the Lord watch over those who do right, and his ears are open to their prayers. And really, this nationally televised event almost felt like a gospel meeting, you know? It, it kind of had that feel to it. And um, 34 years later, that same location, three days after the 9-11 attacks on our country, 100,000 people gathered for a morning service, mourning. They were grieving. There were no Christian clergy. There was no prayer. There was no Bible reading. There were no hymns. There was no confession. What a difference 34 years makes, right? Mm -hmm. And you could sit there this morning watching, well, that's Canada, you know, Canada. Psh, 
you know, Canada. So listen, let's see what goes on in our country. Three days after 9-11 attacks on our country in Washington, D.C., at the Washington National Cathedral, there was a, once again a national service televised over television throughout the country. There were a few preliminaries, and then Dr. Billy Graham preached his heart out for 40 minutes, pointing this nation back to God. Ten years after that event, the 10th anniversary of 9-11, there was an event planned at Yankee Stadium in New York. The clergy were specifically excluded from the entire proceedings. No prayer, no scripture reading, no preaching. Just talk about 9-11. That was it. That same year, um, Pew Research reported that 82% of evangelical leaders were convinced that evangelicals had lost their voice in America. It was gone. So 11 and a half years ago, from about the time we're here this morning, has it got better since then or worse? Huh? Something to think about, the direction we're going. Um, and in the book of Daniel, we have a nation that was exiled. They were, they were brought to a place they didn't want to go, but God had a plan and purpose. And just a footnote to this is not my home, I think it's important that even though, you know, just these few examples, we see that our world, our country, seems to be in decline. Um, it's a good reminder, though, on how we should live our lives. Philippians 3.20 Paul writes, but we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives and we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our Savior. He will take our weak mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own using the same power with which he will bring everything under his control. 1 Peter 2.11, dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners. It's a good reminder to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Jesus said in John 15:18, if the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. The world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it, but you are no longer part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world so it hates you. And some of you have experienced that firsthand. And so how do we live in exile? We're living in exile. This is not our home. We're living in a place that will not be our home forever. Well, we could ask Daniel. You know why? Because Daniel lived in exile for 70 years, and he ended up writing a book about it. He's one guy that impacted two empires back in the day, the Babylonian Empire and the Medo-Persian Empire. He himself impacted those empires. So you can see it doesn't take a lot of people, just the right ones, to let their light shine. One or a few who are steadfast in their God can influence a family. They can influence a neighborhood, a city, a nation. And we should never underestimate the power of a godly life. Right? Living a godly life. And I want to encourage, man, I'm talking to myself and 
online, all of us, man, let's pursue that, that call that God has for us. Daniel not only offers a model on how we can live, you know, to survive, where, you know, unfortunately there's so many, I think, followers of Christ that are in survival mode. They just want to hang on until Jesus comes. And I tell you, that's the wrong posture that we should have. Daniel teaches us actually to thrive in a godless environment. Thriving. He found a way in a culture more wicked than anything we could ever know or imagine. He served God with integrity and with power. We live in a world that's gone haywire. It's true. And in a few short decades, our culture's response to Bible-believing Christians has gone from respect to marginalizing indifference to, in places, outright hostility. And um, that's exactly what Daniel and his buddies experienced. This is not my home. So let's read Daniel chapter 1, um, starting at verse 1. During the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave him victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylonia and placed them in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief of staff, to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. Select only strong, healthy, and good-looking young men, he said. Make sure they are well-versed in every branch of learning, are gifted with knowledge and good judgment, and are suited to serve in the royal palace. Train these young men in the language and literature of Babylon. The king assigned them a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchens. They were trained for three years, and then they would enter the royal service. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were four of the young men chosen, all from the tribe of Judah. The chief of staff renamed them with these Babylonian names. Daniel was called Belteshazzar, Hananiah was called Shadrach, Mishael was called Meshach, and Azariah was called Abednego. But Daniel was determined not to defile himself. Lord, we want to thank you today as we open your word and we open the book of Daniel. We thank you for the model of Daniel's life and how we can thrive instead of just existing. God, we want to do that. We want to thrive for you in our culture today. We, model, we want to model your character to the people you bring into our lives. When they see us, it's a mirror of how Jesus is. We're not perfect, we know that, but we're endeavoring to allow you to work in our lives until you come back for us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Number one in your notes, um, intro. <laughs> we have to digress from Daniel to bring this into context of what's going on, what was going on in the world. 
um, prior to Nebuchadnezzar having the freedom to march into Jerusalem. What was that all about? Well, there's flares in the air. That's the way God operates. God doesn't wake up one day and have a, you know, he's having a bad mood. He's grumpy. And then he just kind of pulls out his gospel gun and fires it at the world and bad things happen. That God doesn't work like that. God is very patient. And he's kind. And he sent flares in the air, as you see, there's some examples of darkness being infiltrated by light. And that's what God was doing. God was sending prophets to, to Israel, shooting flares in the air to say, come on back to me, man. Don't you realize how much I love you and I have a plan for your life? And we see that in Jeremiah, who was... Uh, part of Daniel and Habakkuk, they were all on the same team. 20, it says, for this is what the Lord says, I will send terror upon you and all your friends and you will watch as they are slaughtered by the swords of the enemy. I will hand the people of Judah over to the king of Babylon. He will take them captive to Babylon or run them through with the sword and I will let your enemies plunder Jerusalem, all the famed treasures of the city, the precious Jewels and gold and silver of your kings will be carried off to Babylon. That was 20 years before Nebuchadnezzar marched into Jerusalem. So for 20 years plus, Jeremiah was prophesying to the nation of Israel to return to the Lord, to stop playing games with their life. And... Otherwise, they would be exiled. Their idolatry, their disregard for God's word, it broke the heart of God. In Jeremiah 25, it says, Jeremiah the prophet said to all the people in Judah and Jerusalem for the past 23 years. So it started at 20, and then it went to 23 years. God was, God was gracious, again, adding three more years calling, come back. From the 13th year of the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, until now, the Lord has been giving me his messages. I have faithfully passed them on to you, but you have not listened. Again and again, the Lord has sent you, his servants, the prophets, but you have not listened or even paid attention. Each time the message was this, turn from the evil road. You are traveling and from the evil things you are doing, only then will I let you live in this land that the Lord gave to you and your ancestors forever. But you would not listen to me, says the Lord. You made me furious by worshiping idols you made with your own hands, bringing on yourselves all the disasters you now suffer. And now the Lord of heaven's army says, because you have not listened to me, I will gather together all the armies of the north under King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon whom I have appointed as my deputy. See, God appointed Nebuchadnezzar to carry out his judgment. I will bring them all against this land and its people and against the surrounding nations. I will completely destroy you and make you an object of horror and contempt and ruin forever. This entire land will become a desolate wasteland. Israel and her neighboring lands will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. There it is, 
You're going to be exiled for 70 years. Then after the 70 years of captivity are over, I will punish the king of Babylon and his people for their sins, says the Lord. Isaiah himself in chapter 39 talked about the Jewish royal family would serve the king of Babylon. We could go on and on. But we see God repeatedly warning the leadership of the nation and the people to repent, to return to the Lord. Otherwise, they would face consequences. And yet they turn a deaf ear. Hmm. They continue to live their lives with pride and disobedience. And they blew God off. They just blew him off. Like, who do you think you are, you know? Now, on the flip side, you had Jeremiah and others that were prophesying judgment against the people of God. You had false prophets who were preaching prosperity and peace. Everything's cool, man. Yeah, we're, we're good. We're good to go. So the people embraced the false prophets instead of believing the word of the Lord. And friends, I want to challenge all of us today that there are voices out there that are saying, everything is cool, man. Yeah, you know, you just keep on doing the way you're going. It's cool. It's going to all work out. And we have to make sure that we stay in God's word. And hear what his spirit is saying. Because there's some flares being shot in the air, friends, today and this week. And so when it comes to dealing with his children, God is not harsh. He has our best interest in mind. In Hebrews 12, for our earthly fathers disciplined us for a few years. I remember those days. <laughs> and I'm so glad my dad did, by the way. I'm so grateful. Doing the best they knew how, but God's discipline is always good for us so that we might share in his holiness. This is true too. No discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. Right? We could say that's true. It's painful. But afterward, there will <laughs> be... I remember those painful days. But afterward, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. So the book of Daniel, Daniel experiences exile. He writes a book about it and begins in 605 B.C., the pinnacle of the Babylonian power and really the demise of Jewish sovereignty. And Daniel, Daniel, by the way, and I'm for the young people here today, maybe you're watching online, uh, Daniel was between the ages of 13 and 16 years old along with his buddies. They were teenagers. And they were taken out of their homes, um, taken captive, held hostage. Number two, God did it. Daniel 1 and 2. Here we go. During the third year of the King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord, the Lord gave Nebuchadnezzar victory over King Jehoiakim. It was the Lord that permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylonia and placed them in the treasure house of his God. The citizens of Jerusalem, uh, they were disciplined. They got what they deserved. God had warned them over and over again. Um, unfortunately for Daniel and his three friends, they got caught in the middle of this mess. 
Daniel and his buddies were living for God as teenagers. They didn't have a foot in the world and a foot in with God. Wherever the, their peers were leaning, that's the follow the example of their stood for God. And they followed the example of their parents. And yet the majority of the citizens of Jerusalem and Israel were pagan. And because of that, Daniel and his friends were rewarded with being exiled. Is that fair? Hmm? No. I mean, we could, so many people today, you know, life isn't fair. Well, we know that. I mean, ever since... Whenever, life is not fair. And the sooner we settle in and say, life is not fair. But God is good. Because when life gets messy, God is always good at the end of the day. And we see that Daniel and his friends lost their freedom. We take a look at a map, the straight line from Babylon to Jerusalem, or Jerusalem to Babylon is about 500 miles. And Daniel and his group, uh, they took the longer route. It was 900 miles, traveling up to four months because they'd have to go northwest along the Euphrates River. 900 miles, four months of travel. Uh, when I was thinking about that, I thought back in April 1942 when our troops were in the Philippines and the Japanese army overwhelmed us and we surrendered to them. It was called the Bataan Death March. 70,000 Filipino and American soldiers were forced to march 65 miles to a prison camp. 11,000 died on the road on the way. Just to kind of put that in perspective. This is four months 900 miles. And you can imagine the terror that went through Daniel and his friends being ripped out of their homes and exiled to a nation that was off the rails spiritually. And Daniel and his friends seemingly had a very good upbringing, and their parents had trained them well. And to think that because of the sins of other people, these young men will never see their home again. It's gone forever. And so they were carted off to Babylon and really forced to enter the service of a king that was very, very evil. And we'll get more into that as time goes on. And so we, we look at our difficult circumstances and because of our own choices or choices of somebody else, God can teach us a profound lesson. You see that in your notes on the top where Charles Stanley, every test, every trial, every heartache that's been significant, I can turn it over and see how God has turned it into good no matter what. And Daniel would echo that. He would say, yes, indeed, that's true. That's true. You also find when you read through this book that Daniel wrote, he never whined. He never got his violin out and played it and felt sorry for himself. What a raw deal, man. Here I'm living for God, and my reward for doing that is being exiled to Babylon, the most pagan nation in the world. Is that fair? You know? You never get that in his book. 
and there's a reason for that. You never got on Facebook. You know? Never tweeted. <laughs> oh, man, I'm so... I can't believe God is so mean. You know? No, no, you never did that. We tend to do that, don't we? Yeah, man, we want people to pat us on the back, so I feel so sorry for you. Daniel never went that road. But we see that Daniel starts emphasizing this victory that Nebuchadnezzar had over Jerusalem. And it, it, like, it wasn't a tragic triumph of evil over good. Daniel realized that that's what God wanted to do. It was all in God's plan. Daniel, as a teenager, trusted God enough to realize that God's in control. He knows exactly what's going on. And he cares. And we'll see that more as we get into the book of Daniel, how the Lord was with Daniel. But Daniel saw God's hand in everything. A couple weeks ago when we were talking about um, uh, resting our eyes on Jesus, resting our eyes on Jesus, in our culture today, in our environment where we're living, we get so distracted where our attention is drawn here everywhere, you know. But to settle in as a follower of Jesus and to rest your eyes on him. That God is my God. My life is in his hand. And I can trust him. I'm going to rest my eyes on Jesus. Not all the distractions, flare, you know, all that stuff going on around. I'm trusting the Lord. Because he knows me. He knows my name. He knows your name. And so he's never surprised. And um, we see that Habakkuk, uh, a colleague of Daniel's, writes in 113, he was struggling with this. God told Habakkuk, too, that Babylon would march into Jerusalem. And, and Habakkuk was questioning that. He said, but you are pure and cannot stand the sight of evil. Will you wink at their treachery, pointing to Babylon? Should you be silent while the wicked, basically Babylonians, swallow up people more righteous than they? So Habakkuk, what he did, yeah, Israel is bad, but Babylon, they're really bad. They're really, really bad. They're, they're evil. See, that's where, that's where Habakkuk's coming up. He's, he's comparing Israel. Yeah, we're bad. We're not too bad. You know, we're not too bad. We're better than Babylon. See, that's, that's his argument with God. And um, should we read that verse again? <laughs> but you are pure, God, and cannot stand the sight of evil. Will you wink at Babylon's treachery? Should you be silent while the wicked Babylonians swallow up Israel, who is really more righteous than the Babylonians? That's where his struggle is. But can we go to the end of the day, at the end of that book, Habakkuk, again, realizes, you know what? God is good, and I trust him. And that's why he could write in Habakkuk 3.16, I trembled inside when I heard this, thinking about Babylon marching in. My lips quivered with fear. My legs gave way beneath me. 
and I shook in terror. I will wait quietly for the coming day when disaster will strike the people who invade us. Because he knew that God would judge Babylon after 70 years. And then he says, even though the fig trees have no blossoms, there's no grapes on the vines, even though the olive crops fail and the fields lie empty and barren, even though the flocks die in the fields and the cattle barns are empty, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in the God of my salvation. The sovereign Lord, God in charge, is my strength. You see that? What's Habakkuk finally do? Instead of looking at the distractions of Babylon marching in, he puts his eyes on God at the end of the day. Yeah, bad stuff's going to happen, but guess what? I'm going to rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful, man. And my strength is coming from the sovereign Lord. And, And Habakkuk is saying, man, I'm good with that. I'm good with that. Friends, we have to settle that. Just like Daniel, he settled it when, well, he kept his eyes on the Lord. So after conquering Jerusalem, Nebuchadnezzar, this godless ruler, man, we could go on and on how terrible he was. He, he goes, marches into Jerusalem, into the temple and takes holy items from God's temple. Think about that. You talk about arrogance. Pride. You know, this is their God's temple. I'm going to march in and take all this stuff that they value so much, and I'm going to bring it back. And he put it in the temple of his demonic god, Marduk. Uh, A lot of those gods in Babylonia were demonic. And it was his way of publicly mocking the God of Israel. Number three, surrounded by evil, then the king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief of staff, to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and the other noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. And um, when you look at Daniel, friends, when you read through this story, you think, man, I don't have much to complain about. You know? I mean, really, I, I don't have it as bad as he did. Daniel was a young man who had a bright future in front of him. Everything seemed to have it all. He was a noble. He was a member of the royal family. Then one day it came to a crashing halt. The door slammed on his future. But guess what? God showed up in the midst of that, right? And Daniel thrived in the most unlikely place, which was Babylon. Uh, God was proving once again that The light can shine anywhere in the world. It can. Babylon was a spectacular city. You can take a look uh, on the screen. It's somewhat of an artist's rendering. Anything that Daniel and his friends would march into and they'd take their breath away, like, man, I've never seen anything as majestic and beautiful as this city. It was the largest city known to the world at that time, covering 2,500 acres It was on the eastern uh, bank of the great river Euphrates. 
And when you compare that to Jerusalem, Jerusalem was dwarfed by, by this. Nebuchadnezzar's name, by the way, is found inscribed on nine-tenths of the bricks unearthed from the city. We'll have to send Titus Kennedy over there. Bring one of those bricks back. How about it? Good to go with that? Saddam Hussein actually followed that many centuries later, but he wasn't quite as successful as Nebuchadnezzar. And a footnote, Babylon is in modern-day Iraq. If you, that's Iraq. That's where Babylon was back in the day. And you can find the uh, ruins uh, over there. So Herodotus, the uh, historians say the walls of the city were 80 feet thick, 320 feet high, 56 miles long. How far is 56 miles? Let's take a look at this. Um, there. <laughs> so after church, you want to go seven miles on 18151? Stop. Look at that sign and say, I'm going to drive 56 miles to Platteville. Ready? That's how far, that's how far uh, that city was. Pretty big, huh? Pretty big. So, um, we see that there's evil all around Daniel. And maybe as we're talking, reflecting, you kind of get the sense that our culture is slipping into the abyss. Have you thought that? This is where I go. Um, the sinking ship. Titanic, when you look at the lifeboats. That historic ship has, it's, it's with me all the time. Because I see this image and I see America like this. We're sinking into the abyss. And I, I don't say that to be pessimistic because Babylon, likewise, when it was in a similar situation, and yet Daniel thrived in that environment. And friends, I, I just want to encourage you this morning that life is fragile. Because when you look at the wealth on that ship, and you had others that were in poverty on the bottom of that ship, they all went down together. The men. And that's why it's important that we live our lives for the Lord in a world that's gone. We're living in exile today. I am reminded of uh, a man that is playing today in a football game, San Francisco 49ers. His name is Brock Purdy. He's the quarterback for San Francisco. He uh, played at Iowa State, and it was there in college football that he put his faith in Christ and told the Lord that football will not be my God. You are my God. 
and I will live for you. And the interesting thing is Brock was chosen last on the uh, last round, uh, you know, when, when players are, are chosen to be on teams. He's the last dude out there. It's like, you're a loser, dude, you know? There's no hope for you. He was, he was third string at the beginning of the season, and the starting two quarterbacks got injured, and he stepped in, and he's won every game he's played in. And he said, football is cool, but my joy comes from my relationship from the Lord. And he's bold about it. And you see here, right here, man, you know, on the football field. Let's, let's bend our knee and pray, you know. And so that gets me fired up because when you go into the NFL, it's a hostile environment towards Christianity, you know. But there are men out there in a, uh, a very challenging environment that let their light shine and are not ashamed to stand up for Jesus Christ. That's an example. Like Daniel, do not be intimidated. Do not coast in your relationship with the Lord, but put Christ first and let him make a difference in your life and the people around you. Will you do it? Father, we thank you this morning for the example that we have seen with Daniel and we think of his world, of Israel, where they lost everything and they were exiled. And Lord, there's times it feels like we're living in exile, that um, things are slipping away so quickly, changing so rapidly. It takes our breath away. And Daniel was able to combat that, that panic, that it's hopeless. Instead, he put his eyes on you, God, and he rested in you, realizing that you're in control. You were in control when Nebuchadnezzar came into Babylon. You were in control when Nebuchadnezzar went into the temple in Jerusalem. You were in control when Daniel and his friends served a brutal king. Now the evidence of using him, Lord, excites us. It encourages us. It builds our faith. And Lord, if we dig deep enough, there are a lot of people just like Brock Purdy and thousands and millions of others around the world that are standing up for you in a world that's saying, God, you don't matter. You stay in your little corner over there. You be quiet. Well, they're pushing back. And help us, Lord, to take and follow Daniel's example to push back. To allow you to live in and through us for your honor and your glory. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.